matter what a person thinks about Christianity, we'd all have to admit that there is something truly remarkable of how from one man and then a small band of followers, this movement would eventually touch the world and continue on for generations, a couple thousand years until now. How did Jesus cause that to happen what was his plan to, to expand and to spread the news of his coming? I can imagine some business school students, perhaps business school students in our city, would think through, that's a, that's a worthwhile thing. Like, what was Jesus' marketing plan? How did he build momentum? What was his plan to spread the news? How would he get the message out? How would he seize the momentum when it finally came? How would he leverage the crowds? But as we watch the life and ministry of Jesus in the gospel accounts, we see again, as we always do, the countercultural nature of Jesus, of his kingdom, of his ways, and of his call. And today, again, we'll see a reminder of that in our passage. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to the gospel of Matthew, to Matthew chapter 8. Today we're in Matthew 8, beginning in verse 18. In the Bibles near you, you can find it on page 813. Page 813. I encourage you to open up a copy of the Bible or open up a Bible app just so you can see the text in front of you this morning so you can see exactly where I'm drawing these thoughts from. If you're newer to reading the Bible, the larger numbers are the chapter numbers. We're in chapter 8. The smaller numbers are the verse numbers. So I'll, I'll mention verse 18. We'll work our way through the text in that way. And if you don't own a copy of the Bible yourself, we as a church would love to give you one today as a gift. So following the service, there's a table at the back of the room. There's a stack of Bibles there. So just go by there. Please just take one of those with you today. So Matthew 8, beginning in verse 18. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. This morning in this short passage, we see this emphasis for us today. Trust Jesus with all your life and follow him. Trust Jesus with all your life and follow him. And we'll see this in two aspects this morning. First, we'll see the costliness of following Jesus. And then second, the priority of following Jesus. So the costliness and then the priority of following Jesus. So first, we see the costliness of following Jesus in verses 18 through 20. Now, in the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, we see that Jesus broke into the world in obscurity. Born in Bethlehem, placed in a manger, a humble beginning, no great crowds. And then after years of obscurity, we don't know what happened for decades. He begins his earthly ministry, and before long, crowds began to gather. Back in chapter 4, verse 25, we saw that as Jesus taught and healed, the word was spreading and crowds began to accumulate more and more. 
So then in chapter 5, verse 1, at the beginning of what we call the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus went up on a hillside to teach the crowd. So then we have this incredible sermon, 5-1, to the end of chapter 7, and we see at the end of 7 that the, the sermon had not dissipated the crowd. The crowd was still there, and the crowd was amazed at the authority of Jesus' teaching. And so he came down from the crowd, chapter 8, verse 1, and the crowd continued to follow him. We saw last, last week, chapter 8, verses 1 to 17, that Jesus did powerful acts of healing and restoration. And we see today, verse 18, that there's still a crowd around Jesus, and Jesus notices the crowd. He sees this crowd that has built up. And so how did Jesus respond to the presence of this crowd? And from our perspective, I mean, think about what's happening here. I mean, the popularity is swelling the momentum is growing. The crowd is becoming substantial. I can imagine those who were near him thought, you know, I mean, this is it. This is the moment. It's time to really capitalize on this, to leverage the crowd, to spread this to even more and more people. So what would Jesus do? He says, let's go to the other side of the lake. Let's leave the crowd and go to the other side. That's not what we would anticipate. That's not what the beginning business school student would recommend. That's not how you spread the message. You don't leave the crowd. But before he heads out, we have two encounters that we have the chance to overhear as Jesus begins to depart the crowd. And the first we see in verse 19 is a scribe. Now, a scribe was a Jewish expert in the law of God. So this, this man knew God's word well. Now, in the Gospels, often we'll see that the scribes end up being opponents of Jesus. And so often, if you've read the Gospels several times, you, you begin just immediately think someone who's opposed to Jesus when we read the scribes, but that's not what's going on here. So we shouldn't impose that on this scribe. Because in a moment, we'll see, verse 21, that we're told of this other man, that he's another of these disciples, which implies this one we just talked about was also a disciple of Jesus. A disciple does not mean a, a fully devoted follower of Jesus at this time, but it does mean someone who's in some sense interested in listening to, bent towards the teaching of Jesus. So this particular scribe here is not an antagonist, but he looks quite favorably on Jesus. And so this man comes to Jesus and notice his claim. He says, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. I and mean, this man is excited. He makes this bold claim. And if you think about it, this would seem to be the model disciple. And if you want to start a worldwide movement, you need people like this. You need people with this kind of willingness and boldness to say, I'll go, just point me the way, Jesus, and I will go. I'll be right there. So how would Jesus respond to this eager, willing disciple? Jesus says, foxes have holes. The birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man, referring to himself, has nowhere to lay his head. This man excitedly says, I'll go anywhere. Jesus says, you have no idea the cost of following me. So it seems that not only is Jesus apparently bad at sort of macro level marketing by leaving the crowd, He's also not great one-on-one, -on -one, right? Here's this guy who's ready to go anywhere, and Jesus dumps this massive bucket of ice water on his excitement. As if to say, you have no idea, buddy. You, you don't know what you're asking. You really aren't as committed as you think 
you are. In this response, Jesus is holding out the the sort of lack of place that he had in his life and ministry, the homelessness of Jesus. And evidently, Jesus discerns this man's motives. And apparently, a significant part of this man's motivation was because of what he thought he might get out of being associated with Jesus. We're not certain what this man may have been thinking. He may have been thinking, you know, I don't know if Jesus is the Messiah, the promised, the anointed one or not, but it's certainly starting to look like it by the, the miracles that he's doing and the teachings that he's doing. So if he's about to come in his power and glory, I want to get in on that now. I want to be aligned with his ministry now. Or it may have been on just on a more basic level. That he's listened to the unique teaching of Jesus. He's seen the the compassion and the love of Jesus. And he says, whatever it is, I want to be involved. He just hasn't considered the difficulty that will be included in following Jesus. Based on what Jesus was doing, how uniquely he's teaching, the miracles that he's performing, why wouldn't someone want to be associated with him? To be an early adopter, to, to invest in this startup ministry at the very beginning. Imagine what being associated with Jesus could do for this man. But Jesus says, don't come and follow me for ease. Don't come and follow me for comfort or popularity in this life. For Jesus knew where things were headed in his life. He knows that the crowds, they are fickle. They will come and go. Jesus' life and ministry would not be easy, but instead marked by much difficulty and then eventually great sacrifice. But what about for us? What can we take away from this encounter? One, we we want to be careful of irrational exuberance. We want to be careful of our own irrational exuberance. Uh, As a part of sort of culture in Boston, many of us love the Boston Marathon, myself included. So most years, you know, I've made my way down to watch it. And multiple times across, you know, 20 years of going, I've at least thought to myself while watching, I'm going to run a marathon. I mean, this looks awesome. The feeling seems great. These people are cheering as they go. I'm going to run a marathon. And I I really didn't think it. I think maybe once I said it to somebody, but I mainly thought it to myself. It's like, I'm going to start running tomorrow. I'm going to run tomorrow. And the next day, by next year, I will run the marathon. And I did run the next day you know, a quarter of a mile, you know, so, so I, and the next day I ran another quarter of a mile, and, and before the week was up, like, I said, that's a bad idea, like, I am not going to run the marathon. I was irrationally exuberant, but I had, had no commitment. I hadn't counted the cost. There was no way I was going to follow through. I pretty much decided I will never run a marathon. I've, I've given up the vision. The dream is, the dream is dead for me. There, there will be no marathon in my life. And you know what it's like to be irrationally exuberant, don't you? Sometimes as followers of Jesus, we likewise make commitments to other people or to the church. And we say, I'll do that. Haven't thought through the costliness of it. And there's little follow through on our parts. Of course, the alternative is not to be a Christian who never commits. That's not the picture either. But it is that we want to be careful of being overly exuberant. We also have to be careful of irrational exuberance in others as well, because that can be difficult and discouraging also. 
When we first started this church 20 years ago, uh, 18 years ago, um, I, I read numerous church planting books, talked with others, and one of the things I heard multiple times was this. They said, be careful, the people who attend for the first time and are most excited about the church most likely won't come back. And I thought, that can't be. I mean, that sounds outrageous. As we started the church, I found it to be true. I mean, multiple times I'd be at the door and someone was walking out and they were like, this was amazing. I love it. Everything was great. I mean, the preaching needs some work, but otherwise, you know, it was really great. I'll be back next week. And I was excited. I mean, we had 14 people. Here's a person like, this is great. Go home and tell my wife, Brandy. I talked to so-and-so. It was so excited. And again and again, remarkably, the most excited ones didn't come back. It happened even this past fall. So we, we were preparing to send out a church plant to Bedford. And so I talked about the church plant and the sermon. And at the door, this gentleman, first time he'd ever been to the church, came to me at the door and he said, hey, tell me more about the church plant. He's like, I'm so excited. I live out in that vicinity. He told me about kind of his church background and he's excited. He knew lots of church lingo. So I got his contact info and I, I sent it to our church planter, Scott. I said, hey, Scott, I met this guy on Sunday. He's really excited. I said, I just want to tell you though, Kind of guard your heart because I've had the experience in the past of people being overly exuberant, not following through. And I'm pretty sure Scott thought I lacked faith. He's like, come on, you're a crusty old pastor. You got to believe in this person. Scott follows up. Initially, the guy's really excited and he just vanished. Super excited at the door. No follow through. So we don't want to be a people ourselves and, and, and build a culture of irrational exuberance. But we certainly do want to have joy and hope and optimism as we follow Jesus. But we want to be people who make commitments and keep commitments, who count the costs and seek to follow through. So friend, I, I encourage you to consider, are you someone who sometimes makes irrationally exuberant commitments and don't follow through? I mean, do the people in your life hear your commitments, but they immediately think, I mean, yeah, he means well. Yeah, she's excited, but she'll be moved on to something else by next week. We also want to see that Jesus was teaching the scribe and us that, that he brings the life that is truly life, but that life is often costly and difficult. Well, we, by looking at Jesus' words here, Jesus is not anti-money. He is not anti-possessions. He's not even anti-house. He's not saying that all Christians are going to be poor. In fact, often in this life, if Christians live in, in a diligent, wise, biblically informed way, if we work hard to the glory of God, if we, if we sow and we water Often, not always, often, Christians can make progress in this life and, and sometimes do well. But we easily take this too far. And we follow Jesus thinking that Jesus promises that we will do well in this life in every area. And by well, we mean really well. A life marked by comfort and ease, prosperity and health. And sometimes if we're honest, we follow Jesus so that we will get ahead. We think if I take these actions, if I attend church regularly, Jesus will help me to get ahead in life. 
We also are often attracted to what seems to be the winning team. So if there are crowds, and, and there aren't many crowds in churches in Boston, but in much of America, there still is. So if there's a crowd, it seems prosperous. And so we're drawn to that. So friend, are there ways that you're coming to Jesus because of what you think he will do for you in this life, meaning ease, comfort, achievement, prosperity? Have you found yourself discouraged at times? Because you've been following Jesus, but you've found it to be harder than you thought it would be. Have you become frustrated with Jesus because you haven't received the material blessings that honestly you thought you would receive? You're trying to glorify him, but, but you're not becoming wealthy. You're instead struggling. You're not healthy. In fact, your, your body is breaking down with disease. Friends, Jesus calls his followers to follow him into the life that is truly life. We saw him describe it in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, the life of his kingdom. It is a different sort of life, it is true, but it is life that's really worth living. But it is not the, not the life that guarantees ease or a freedom from suffering or prosperity. Friends, it's costly to follow Jesus. But Jesus is saying, this is the life that's really worth it, even through the costliness of it. So we see the costliness of following Jesus. Second, we see the priority of following Jesus in verses 21 and 22. So verse 21, another disciple comes to Jesus and says to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Now, we admit that in this passage, we don't know much about the circumstances of this situation. Simply this one man comes to Jesus and says, let me go bury my father before I follow you. It could be that the father of this man has relatively recently died, and he's asking for an extended time of mourning, which was not uncommon in the world of that day. So I want an extended time of mourning, and then, Jesus, I will follow you. Or it could be, and perhaps just as likely, that his father is not yet dead, but his, dad's, his father's health is failing. So he's saying, let, let me stay here until my dad dies, and then I want to care for uh, the funeral, and then I will follow him. What seems unlikely is that his father has immediately, in, in the most recent days, died. Because it, culturally, if his dad had just died, he would not be out there listening to Jesus at this moment. So if it was just, just the day before, he would not, he would, he would be an outcast in society if he was out listening to Jesus at this point. So, so it could be that it has happened, he's looking for an extended time, or he's saying, let me wait. Either way, Jesus responds, verse 22, with this, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Now, as always, we read a text in light of the surrounding context and right of the whole Bible. So what is Jesus saying? We know that Jesus is not in some way anti-family. He's not encouraging children, uh, adult children, to disrespect or to dishonor their parents. The fifth of the Ten Commandments tells us to honor your father and mother. And, and nowhere does Jesus call us to disobey that. Later on in the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew 15, Jesus will really aggressively confront some of the Jewish religious leaders who were using the temple's contribution system really to get around caring for their parents appropriately. And as we see Jesus on the cross, we see an interest to care for his own mother. 
So whatever Jesus is saying, there's no way he's calling us to somehow disrespect or discount our family. Jesus' concern there is more substantial and deeper than the question of the funeral for this man's father. Jesus is addressing this man's ultimate priority. Jesus is always interested in what is our highest priority. Author D.A. Carson says it this way, Jesus' concern is not so much to forbid all who would follow him from attending the funerals of near relatives, as it is to expose the danger of merely qualified discipleship. The point is not so much that people should not be concerned for their parents, but that if concern for parents becomes an excuse for not following Jesus or for delay in following Jesus, then concern for parents is as important as, is being, as, important as it is, is being too highly valued. So Jesus is going at merely qualified discipleship. This man has taken a good and right obligation of care for his family and made it a driving, the driving priority in his life. So Jesus says, let the spiritually dead bury the dead. Meaning that there, there are some who will, will dwell in this time of mourning in an extended way. And the point here is that nothing and no relationship in this life is to take priority over the call to follow Jesus. These other relationships are to take order underneath that call. And in fact, those relationships will be most healthy when they find themselves under this higher priority. So Jesus confronts this man's priorities. And friends, he presses on ours today as well. So friend, I wonder, what do you currently prioritize over following Jesus as king? Is it the pursuit of success in your job, that if you were honest, that's the highest priority in your life? Is it academic pursuits, that if you're honest, is the highest driving priority of your life? Very often for us, it is relationships. Certain sorts of relationships we're looking for and desiring, that becomes the highest priority for us. Sometimes our desire for marriage or for children becomes the highest priority priority. Now, friends, of course, God has given us the good gift of marriage and family. So Christians, above all, love and value marriage. Christians, above all, love the blessing of children. And at the same time, Jesus promises and calls his followers to prioritize family, but in fact, to prior prioritize another family. One of the most basic and substantial ways we prioritize Jesus and his kingdom is to prioritize the family of the local church. One of the things Jesus teaches us, he, he says that anyone who leaves family for the sake of the gospel, leaves behind family to go and tell others about Jesus, he promises he will provide for them family. He will provide additional family and he does that through the local church. So those who go and tell, he, he meets that need through the local church. And friends, that was the experience of our family. About 22 years ago, we moved about 1,500 miles away from our family. Now, I by no means want to equate that with someone who had moved to another continent for the sake of the gospel. So ours is not nearly like that. But still, for our family, it was painful. 
to move hundreds of miles away from any family at all. We had no family in Boston. Friends, the fact is Jesus, for our family, has been faithful to his promise. So though we had no family here, God provided family for us and especially for our kids. And he provided it through you, through this local church who've been to our kids like cousins and aunts and uncles and parents and grandparents to them. And in many ways, the influence of this family has been deeper and more influential than our families elsewhere, though we certainly love them. And our kids who are now grown and out of the house, they currently love and embrace their own local church now to a significant degree because of you this local church family. Because of how you have loved them, they love the church. They don't love the church primarily because their dad is a pastor, but because of this church, because you cared so deeply for them. And now we're thankful they both have a local church that they love like family, that to a certain extent fills in for us because we're not near them. Just last month, we had our first grandchild, a grandson. If you'd like to see, I have about a thousand photos right here I could show you. <laughs> the beautiful thing for our grandson is he has another family in their church. Cousins, aunts and uncles, grandparents in their church. And we are grateful for that. Now, when we go and visit in June, I, I got to be honest, I'll probably push them aside and say, hey, look, grandpa's here. I'm going to hold the baby, like back off people. This is my, my grandson. But we're, we're grateful for that family. And friends, that's God's design for his church. So friends, we want to be people who think biblically and well about both our immediate families, but also the family of the local church. Because some well-meaning Christians elevate our immediate family, but in a way that unintentionally lessens their their family and their children's connection with the family of the local church. So friend, if you're parents or if you aspire to be parents, do you help your kids to love and prioritize the local church? Every parent who's a Christian wants their child to know and love Jesus, so we pray for them. From a young age, we read a children's Bible with them. We try to invest in them at every turn But one way that often parents sadly negate, which is most basic and fundamental, is to help them love and prioritize the family of the local church. How do we do that? How does a a parent do that for their children? Friend, first of all, let your kids from the earliest age see you love and prioritize the local church. If they see you love it, they'll love it. If you build it in, just the the natural rhythm of your family to say, look, Sundays, we just gather with God's people. That's really, it's not something we negotiate. That's just what we do as a family. Friends, a second way is to seek to have your kids connected more broadly in the church. The, The church is not just, you know, this family comes, they sit together in this one row, and they never interact with others. But God's intention is for all of these families intermingling together. So parents, focus on your kids, but not only on your kids. Focus on others who are in the church as well. And friends, the reality is there will come a time when your kids grow up and they leave home and they'll make choices of whether they want to follow Jesus or not. And you won't be able to help them then, so, but you can now. 
If they love the church now, the likelihood they'll love the church or another church in the future is so much higher. Now, this broader family is our focus at times like this when we gather every Sunday. So this should shape the way that we think about one another when we come. So, friend, if this is your church, this is your family. Imperfect family, though it certainly is. And so, friend, if you're single, when you come on Sunday morning, you don't come here to be alone. But when you come in, I would encourage you, who might you connect with and sit with? It might be that you have a married couple, you know, and you would sit with them. It might be with two or three other singles. You sit with them. It might be with a family with children. You come and look. Who could you connect with? If you're a married couple and the two of you come in together, it's a good thing that you gather together, but don't just stay together. It's not just the two of you in this moment. But you step into the family together. So as a couple, who could you sit with? Who could you invite to sit with you? And friend, if you have children, when the children come, help them to see Maybe they sit with someone else. Maybe some come and sit with you and the kids, but all of us looking up and look around. That's what we all want to do every Sunday. It's not just about I'm coming in and I'm leaving. Look around at those with you. This is your family. Invite them in. When I was growing up on my dad's side of the family, we typically would have a family reunion one Saturday in August. And believe me, this family was quite dysfunctional, marred by sin, like most families. But on that Saturday, when we gathered together in this room, there would be people of all different ages, some around tables, some playing games, children running all over the place. But if you walked up to a table and you said, oh, you know, is this, is this your spouse? And you said, no, no, he's over there. This is my cousin. That's my uncle. And you see this person holding a child. Like, was that your kid? No, this is my niece. And so in the moment, it's actually almost impossible to tell who's immediately connected with one another because they're all family. And in that family, though it was dysfunctional, if a guest came, if you brought a friend, for that day, you're part of the family, right? You're just welcomed in. And friends, so it is to be in the local church. You shouldn't be able to easily tell who's with who because it's one big family reunion every Sunday when we gather now, in this encounter with this man, the man says to Jesus, let me first. Let me first do this, and then I'll follow. And friends, so often, that's what we're thinking in our minds. Let me first do that, Jesus, then I'll follow you. Let me first graduate with that degree, and then I'll follow. Let me first get to this certain level in the workplace. And then I'll follow you, Jesus. Let me first find the spouse that I so desire. Let me first have kids. Let me first reach a certain level of security and stability financially, and then I'll follow Jesus. And often when we say that or think that, that's honestly what we believe. We do think we'll do this and then we'll come back to Jesus. But friends, so often we never make our way back. Because in making that the first priority of our lives, eventually, that grips us so deeply. Sadly, we become enslaved to it. And we lose even a desire to return and follow Jesus. So friend, is there something in your life that you're making the ultimate priority right now? 
where you're saying, let me do this first. And you're pressing Jesus down as a priority in your life. And friend, if that's honestly the case, let me urge you today to repent of that, reevaluate, turn back. That's not to say that Jesus is the only thing in your life, but he's the ultimate thing. Then these other good priorities have their place, but in the correct order. That then we're free to pursue them, to, to glorify God in diligence in any number of areas of life. As we think about the words of Jesus, if we're honest this morning, they are shocking words. Strong words. I mean, if nearly anyone else had a call to follow like this, we would think, one, maybe he's a cult leader. Or two, we might ask, but who does he think he is to say things like this? In order to evaluate whether we should follow someone who makes such a claim, we should, one, consider, well, does he even have authority to make such a claim? And if he does have authority, does he have the character that I would want to follow him? If he says, follow me at the greatest of cost, is he trustworthy? Is he good? Is he loving? And we always read a text in light of its context. So these verses that we read of Jesus are, are not the only words that Jesus say. They're connected to the context in Matthew, connected more broadly to the Gospels and all the Scriptures. And before we're too hard on these two men and these two encounters, we, we admit that they're right in the middle of the story. I mean, things are not clear of where things are headed. So we don't, we don't want to do too hard on them. We have the, the, the blessing of being able to see so much more. We see the whole story of Jesus' life and ministry now in the Gospels. So what is Jesus' authority to make such a call? In verse 20, we see that Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. And in the Gospel of Matthew, this was one of the favorite ways that Jesus referred to himself. And he draws it from Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel 7, verse 13 and 14, we see that it says, One like a son of man receives a kingdom of God himself from the ancient days. So this one, this mysterious figure, one like the son of man is the one who then is bestowed honor as the promised one of God. And Jesus steps on the scene and he begins to use that title for himself. And clearly by using that title, Jesus is implying, I'm that. That in Daniel 7 is referring to me. Jesus is clearly beginning to make clear he is the divine one. He is the anointed Messiah. We've also seen in Jesus that he teaches like no one else. We saw last week he has the power to heal and restore unlike any other. So we look and see Jesus does have the authority to make such an unqualified call to follow him. But what about his character? Is Jesus good? Is he loving? Is he trustworthy? We saw last week in the verses just before that Jesus welcomed the outsider. The untouchable leper Jesus touches Jesus heals the broken. He restores. He invites into the narrow way that he says leads to life. We'll see as we move forward in Matthew, Jesus will invite to himself. He'll say, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. We'll see Jesus consistently have compassion for the outcast, for the one who's trapped in sin. 
And then ultimately, this one who has all authority would choose to lay down his life on a cross where he, the perfect son of God, would give himself in the place of sinners like us so that through his death and resurrection, he would purchase this free gift of salvation. In our text today, Jesus had mentioned that he had, he, the son of man, has no place to lay his head. Well, in the gospel of John, in John 19, as Jesus is dying on the cross, we have the same word used. And there Jesus bows his head or lays down his head. First time since that, Jesus now lays his head down. And where is it that Jesus lays his head? It's on the cross. It is there on the cross as he dies that then the one who didn't have a place to lay his head now lays his head down as if finally he's able to rest in the most sacrificial act in the history of the world. Son of God, giving himself for sinners like us. And through the laying down of his head, the giving of himself, he's provided this free gift to any and all who receive it by faith. And so, friend, if you're not a Christian, we're so glad you would spend part of your Sunday with us. And we realize this call of Jesus sounds shocking, outrageous, perhaps even offensive. But I would encourage you to consider, could there be a Savior who would love like this? And therefore, this call to follow might be the most gracious invitation because of who he is. Because he's inviting us into the life that is truly life. So if you're new to this, we'd love to tell you more. You're welcome to just attend with us on Sundays to explore this. Uh, I'll be at the door if you'd like to chat. I'd be happy to chat with you. You can also note it on the connection card. You say, hey, I'd like to know more. You can drop it in the offering basket in just a moment. We'd love to connect with you and help you. For those of us who are Christians, we're called to self-examination today to, to consider Am I following Jesus above all else? It is certainly costly. It is a sacrifice to follow Jesus. But we always want to be clear, our sacrifice is only in response to his infinitely greater sacrifice. We don't sacrifice for Jesus so that he'll love us. We sacrifice in response to the fact he has already loved us fully and completely through his cross. And he, the one who calls us to follow, empowers us, sustains us by the Holy Spirit to do just that. Author D.A. Carson says it this way. In one sense, our salvation costs us absolutely nothing. In another, it costs us not less than everything. The former is true because Jesus paid it all. The latter is possible Because Jesus enables us to respond to his upward call. Friends, that's the story of Christianity. Jesus paid it all. And now he empowers us to join in this call that he has for us. So friend, this week, today, how does the call to follow Jesus shape your choices? The choice of where you will live and how you will live. How you think about money and possessions, how you think about family, even the family of the church. Our king calls us to follow him, to count the cost, to prioritize him above all else. And he, friends, empowers us 
by his grace for this calling. So let's today, together, embrace our king and his strange calling. For this is where life is truly found.